Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Even by the standards of the last six years, it was a highly contentious week across geographic, political, cultural, and legal lines. The horrifying and fatal beating of Tyree Nichols brought new calls for federal police reform that Republicans in Congress have made clear they will oppose, as well as sharp scrutiny of the kinds of specialized units operating in high crime areas that employed the five accused killers of Nichols. House Republicans filed their second impeachment motion in this young Congress to impeach Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over disgruntlement at continuing problems on the border that in fact date back at least 50 years. And the House Oversight Committee, run by GOP Congressman Jim Comer, will this week hold the first of what figures to be multiple hearings feeding their boundless obsession with Hunter Biden's business dealings. Biden and his legal team, meanwhile, appeared to pivot to a new aggressive and high-risk strategy of attacking his inveterate Republican critics for various improprieties and illegal conduct. Lastly, two offices in downtown New York have former President Donald Trump in their crosshairs. The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, is proceeding with a civil suit that is scheduled to go to trial in October and that threatens Trump and his family with a huge verdict that could result in their loss of control over the Trump empire and brand. And just down the block, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg who on taking office a year ago mothballed a potential prosecution against Trump growing out of the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, dusted off the same lawsuit and began to present it to a grand jury. To analyze the current state of affairs in a country knee-deep in criminal investigations of its current and former president and mired by seemingly intractable cultural divides and petty politics, We welcome back to Talking Feds, a fantastic panel of experts. And they are Carol Lennig, a national investigative reporter focused on the White House and government accountability at the Washington Post and an on-air contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. She has won two Pulitzer Prizes, three George Polk Awards, is the author of 2021's Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, and two books about the Trump presidency with her colleague, Phil Rucker. Carol, thanks so much for joining. Glad to be here, Harry. Congressman Ted Lieu, in his fifth term representing California's 33rd Congressional District in the United States House of Representatives, he sits on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, down one Democrat member after yesterday. We'll discuss that. He is also a former active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force and served in the Reserves, retiring with the rank of Colonel in 2021. Thank you, Congressman, for your service, and thank you, as always, for returning to Talking Feds. Honored to be back on your show, Harry. And 
Elliot Williams, very close. I had to look it up to a charter member. He was in the second <laughs> Talking Feds ever, a couple hundred shows ago and several since then. He is a principal in the Ravens Group Government Affairs Practice Group and a CNN legal analyst. He served nearly eight years in the Obama administration, in the DOJ, and in Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Prior to that, he also worked as Judiciary Counsel to now Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Elliot Williams, thanks for coming back to Talking Fit. Happy to be an old school Talking Fed, Harry. Uh, let's do it. <laughs> there you go. We need patches or something. All right, let's start, I think, with the Nichols case and the issues of policing that arise in its aftermath. So with the gut-wrenching beating to death of Tyree Nichols, we have a new round of national reflection on policing policy. I want to talk a little bit about the case first. So the release of the video was much anticipated. It certainly was brutal, but it was also, to my mind, kind of a jumble of different cameras and angles and made it hard to really take in the real-time savagery. What were the take-home points for any of you of the video itself? You know, I'm going to speak not as um, an expert on reform and policing, although I've been involved in a couple different projects about lethal use of force and the abuse of police. But just as a human being watching this and trying to explain it to my colleagues, but also to my children, I was really stunned by what appeared to be the impossibility of Nichols to comply or do anything that would stop the beating, that would stop the inappropriate abuse of his body, abuse of his rights, abuse of his clear compliance. What did he do that was a risk to anyone other than a suspected reckless driving, which I've never heard suspected reckless driving, but there was no way to comply with the number of orders he was given. I agree with you, by the way, Harry, the jumble of cameras was hard to tell exactly, but he could not possibly meet whatever the police wanted him to do that night and avoid a horrific, brutal beating that eventually led to his death. To pick up on all of that, even assuming that something had transpired prior to the start of the video that justified the officers in the stop, they had far exceeded their authority, and that's abundant from the face of the video, in neutralizing whatever threat might have been posed. Now, certainly we empower, in America, we empower police to use a concomitant amount of force to stop or prevent others from being hurt, from themselves from being hurt, from further crimes from being committed. This was not that. This was clearly uh, far exceeding the bounds of any permissible force. And, and to your point, Carol, about the jumble of videos. Just think about the Rodney King video, which was eight back in, what was it, 91? It was 89 seconds long, and you knew exactly what you were watching. The challenge here is that that night, particularly after having seen or heard a week of this is going to be the worst video you've ever seen. And it's going to, after a week of that, what we were then given was like an hour of footage that was very hard to follow in times. Now, look, it was unquestionably acts of brutality and a homicide played out on those videos, but it was harder to follow than certainly I was anticipating. And that's a shame because I think our appetite now is for the immediate, the instant, and what you can see and sort of get your head around. But no, certainly we, we all watched a homicide, whether he can be convicted, of, they can be convicted of it remains an open question. I think we'll probably get to that in a bit. Keeping 
defenseless individuals from dying in the hands of police should not be a partisan issue. Uh, unfortunately, it has become partisan. Democrats passed the Justice for George Floyd Policing Act. It was Senate Republicans that stopped that. And I think the view that Republicans have of just not doing anything uh, has shown that it's actually not working. And I do think we need to get legislation to put in police reform, and hopefully uh, we're going to be able to do that this term. I just have a couple follow-up points to Elliot. Just a marker. There's going to be a really interesting legal issue, I think, because they are going to try, I assume, the state to take that jumble, and now we have the overhead as well, and construct something closer to the Rodney King, a coherent three-minute video to play for the jury, and that's going to be a legal Donnybrook involving challenges about is it authentic and that kind of thing. Because if they can put together something clean like that, it'll be obviously the killer testimony. To Carol's point, I just wanted to echo it. I've been involved in different lethal force cases or unlawful force cases, including Rodney King. I've never seen the sort of hellish, literally hellish quality of this where there was nothing he could do. They're holding his hands and saying, show me your hands. I mean, Policing 101 is clear and simple, straightforward commands, and they were completely contradicting each other, and it was such bedlam and such confusion, and that was really a horrific aspect of it to me. Elliot, let me stick with you. You tweeted out a really useful summary of the various charges. Now, as you noted, the family pushed hard for a first-degree murder charge, and I think all of us here, and the family eventually understood that's just not feasible. There's no premeditated murder charge. But they seem satisfied with the DA's choice of a lead charge of second-degree murder. Given the facts as we know them, you think that's a pretty tall order? How tough is that going to be for the DA? I think there are going to be challenges with it, Harry, for a couple reasons. Now, look, the big picture is I think prosecutors' hands were kind of tied by Tennessee law over what they could charge. First-degree yeah. murder, you, yeah, well, you weren't going to get them on premeditation unless you have an, a recording of them driving up saying, what's killed this man? So, okay, that's not happening. All right, so if you skip over second-degree murder, what you could have charged him with was criminally negligent homicide, but there wasn't negligence here. They were quite deliberate in their actions. So that's sort of a foolish charge. That's not going to work. And then and you have involuntary manslaughter in Tennessee, like sort of a heat of passion killing the cuckolded husband with the shotgun who, you know, that's involuntary manslaughter, at least under Tennessee law. So they sort of, for a public that was hungry to see a homicide charge, they kind of had to charge second degree murder. Now, to get there and convict, you have to prove a knowing killing which means that the defendant either knowingly engaged in multiple incidents of assault on the individual and should have known that the cumulative effect of those would have led to their death, or that the defendant was you know, reasonably certain that their acts would have led to an individual's death. Now, you can watch this individual be beat to death, particularly from the poll cam video, the overhead one, and think, well, all common sense says that anybody ought to know that those kinds of blows on someone's body are going to lead to their death. Officers and a smart defense attorney could say, well, I, you know, this is this is force being used. This is you ever watch a boxing match? You ever watch MMA or anything like that? Now, again, I am not endorsing this point of view at all. Of course, of just, course. But this is just how a defense attorney would, would look beyond at Beyond a say, reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable right? doubt. Now, look, common sense says that officers are trained in what's lethal and what's not when you're pounding on somebody's head or chest or whatever or kicking them. And common sense and reasonableness would dictate to you, to me, to, to us here, I think, 
that that kind of action will lead to somebody's death. But you could certainly poke holes at it enough to get in one juror's head, I think. And so the murder charge. Not just will it reasonably certain. Reasonably that's certain. That's the good defense attorney right. Gets, right? And yeah. just putting enough doubt in somebody's mind. Now, again, like I said earlier, and I want to be very clear here, this was a homicide. This was an act of ending someone's life, perhaps intentionally, right? The question is, can you convict them of second-degree murder in the state of Tennessee for it? And I think that's still an open question from where I sit. Elliot, is there a reckless disregard for human life standard in Tennessee? Not in this statute, I believe. It's just reasonably certain to result in the thing that's going to happen, the death. And I think, Congressman, were it the criminally negligent homicide statute, I think, yeah, you could pull in all that reckless disregard stuff. And actually, one more final thing. I do wonder if the failure to render care and those 22 or 23 minutes in which the ambulance isn't coming, no one's doing CPR, no yeah. one's checking his head or any of that. I wonder if the prosecutors will, will argue that that also contributes to their finding mm. of knowing that someone might die, that it was such an egregious failure on the part of the individuals who were there that even setting aside the beating, they let a man who's probably having a brain hemorrhage sit on the street and die right before their eyes. But it's it's unconscionable. It's just not, uh, it's not a slam dunk, let's say that, as, as very few criminal cases are. Yeah, look, I really want to echo that as a former prosecutor. I think they did make the right charge, but it's a bit of a reach. If and when this goes to trial, it's going to be the latest clique lights and it is set up that if they can't convict on that charge, it might come off as a failure with all the, you know, associated results. The one thing I would say, the unfortunate thing in all this is that imagine they acquit on the homicide charge or maybe even the aggravated assault, although I think you probably get there. The most likely convictions are the things that sort of are going to feel unsatisfying to the public and a slap on the wrist, which are the official misconduct charges. Because you can get all these officers for exceeding the bounds of their office and unlawfully stopping someone and using force impermissibly under those two statutes. It's like one to three years in prison. It's not the kinds of sentences that, that number one, are going to fit this crime or number two frankly, these folks deserve, assuming they, they can be convicted. Yeah. I mean, and people will be left disappointed. It's Look, this is a bit of a roll of the dice. I want to just add two quick prosecutor's points. The first is something I was looking for and couldn't make out because of the jumbled presentation. Typically in something like this, there would be one or two or three officers who are distinctly less culpable. So in the King case, you know, the bad dude was Kuhn. And in the Floyd case, Chauvin, are there a couple people now that might be willing to cooperate? That's a big thing to look for. And then something that really disappointed me about this, one has the impression that the perpetrators of these crimes often are the old school cops who've been around and the culture is changing and newer cops are much better trained. These guys were all hired between 2017 and 2020. They're relatively new cops and that they had that kind of just savagery and even capacity for sadism, not to mention, as I said before, complete absence of proper police procedure. That's a drag. But moving now to what the congressman was talking about, so possible reform proposals, Senator Booker was quick out of the box with a version of the George Floyd Act. We had the George Floyd Act. 
I want to zero in on these high crime patrol areas. So the Scorpion Squad, which these guys are, was disbanded immediately. And you hear about similar debacles in other areas. But then you have the mayor of New York coming out and saying, that's not what caused it. Don't throw the baby with the bathwater. These squads really have made important headway in fighting crime in high crime areas. I like to see more data. I like to know how these units perform. We have one incident. I like to see across America uh, what kinds of incidents are happening with these units. Let me put it this way. Is the problem here integral, unavoidable to these kinds of units, or is it more contingent and a product of bad training and the like. I would say none of the above, Harry. I think there's a broader philosophical point. And when we talk about police reform in general, we often talk about individual reform. Well, if you put more body cameras on officers, therefore there would be fewer incidents. If you, you know, pick your minor thing, right? It's a philosophical problem, which is Police are trained from the beginning to regard themselves as warriors, sort of holding the line against problems in society and not control guardians, the streets, yeah. control the streets and not guardians. Think of something even basic. When you talk about state troopers, the idea of referring to officers as troops is rooted in a military concept. No harm or disrespect to police officers. That's what they're trained to do. They're trained to fight. And imagine if we rethought or reshaped policing to think of almost more of a symbiotic relationship with the community where you're there to guard it, not engage in acts of war. So whether you have scorpion units targeting vice crimes in the cities or higher level detectives, the broader philosophical point is what I think ails policing. And I want to be clear, I've worked in law enforcement for almost my entire career. I'm not saying go completely soft and take all the guns away from police officers or any of that, but there's a philosophical basis of policing in America that sets us apart from our peers around the world, that that needs to change. And then from that, then you can start answering questions about, well, whether the Scorpion unit ought to have eight people or 11 or be armed with batons versus sticks or whatever else. I couldn't agree more with Elliot about that. In my reporting on Secret Service agents, I've met some that have really stood out for giving voice to the notion of the guardian versus the soldier. I'll just use an example one of them gave with me. You arrive at a 7-Eleven, there is a mentally disturbed individual holed up in a corner of the store with a weapon. Is your goal to shoot that person and neutralize immediately as quickly as you possibly can any risk to anyone else? Or is your goal to figure out how to get that guy safely de-weaponed and everybody going home to their bed at night safely, including the police? And I think it's that latter model that it would be wonderful if our country was reinforcing in police training to resolve this. Because how can it be? We say this in the newsroom all the time. How can it be that there is another video that captures police beating to death a person who's done nothing and is not armed and not a risk? You know, the Marshall Project, sort of criminal justice nonprofit, Mm -hmm. has a great piece out earlier this week, maybe about a week ago, on handcuffs on children. And what happens when you have kids who are disturbed, acting up, but fighting in schools and cops show up 
and slap handcuffs on them. And invariably, it escalates the situation dramatically. Now, look, sometimes there's a circumstance where a child might actually be violent or risk to himself or somebody else. But there also might be a circumstance, most circumstances where if you show up, as Carol's saying, with social services, rather than immediately turning it into a physical hostile altercation. And then you wonder why 20 years later, this kid hates the police because of the encounters that he probably had when he was six or seven years old and had a cuff slapped on him because of a fist fight at school. It's a broader systemic point, far bigger than how big the tires are on police cars or whether you wear your pin on your left side or your right side. It's just bigger than that. Fair enough. And here, of course, none of that even seems germane because, you know, Tyree Nichols didn't right. seem mental, needed any. Of course. Coming home from his FedEx shift to his mom. Congressman, you mentioned at the outset this shouldn't be a partisan issue. So let me ask, there are calls now for reform, for the revisiting uh, of the George Floyd Act. Given the narrow Republican control in the House and their numbers in the Senate, any chance of meaningful policy reform here at the national level anyway? So my view of politics is that everything seems impossible until it happens. So you just have to keep pushing and pushing. You never know when something will break and something happens in a good way. I do note that Speaker McCarthy promised that on the first day of the Republican-controlled House that they would read the Constitution on the floor of the House. He couldn't even execute that. So I don't have a lot of faith on his ability to govern, to get anything done, but it is still early in the term and we'll see what happens. That's a perfect segue to our next topic. So the Republican majority in the House finished January with no real policy proposals, no reading of the Constitution of the floor, but a pedal to the metal focus on settling scores and wild-eyed obstructionism. Fulfilling a pledge made to the Freedom Caucus, Kevin McCarthy spearheaded a successful move this week to strip Ilhan Omar of her spot on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Straight party lines, and McCarthy had to make a few concessions to less conservative members to keep the caucus together. So, Congressman Liu, you're a member of the committee. I wonder what your thoughts are, and to the extent you can share them, your, the thoughts of your colleagues to whether there's any response here, anything to be done besides calling it out as political revenge. Republican members of Congress, Green and Gosar, were removed for workplace violence. They were threatening violence against members of Congress. Anyone who does that as a member of Congress threatening another member of Congress with violence, uh, they should be removed. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're going to do that, you should be removed from your committees. Ilhan Omar did no such thing. This is like comparing apples and automobiles. They're just completely not related <laughs> to each other. It is simply an act of uh, revenge and settling political scores. And that's because Republicans in the House are unable to pass any meaningful legislation. So they do stupid stuff like that. Well, let, let me just play devil's advocate a bit. Omar did say some controversial things, though she apologized for it. Is the case different from Swalwell and Schiff, or do you really see it all as one and the same? If Republicans are going to use that standard, there's a number of their members that have hung out yes. with white nationalists. There are members that they have in their own caucus that have made tremendously anti-Semitic statements. So if you're going to apply that standard, then you've got a bunch of Republicans that will be removed from committees as well. Anti-American for that matter, yeah. 
look, we can talk about January 6th all day and the silence of, of some members of the caucus there. Who, Only 139 uh, of them, Elliot. <laughs> I was being charitable, but needless <laughs> to say, I think history is written by the victors, for lack of a better way to put it. And it's a political body and they're behaving almost as, as one would expect them to behave at this point. All right. Well, also high on the Republicans hit list. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We served as U.S. attorneys together, actually. So they've already introduced two impeachment resolutions against him. If they carried through, it'd be only the second time in U.S. history that a cabinet officer has been impeached. You know, I think most people don't even understand what's going on there and why they've got him in their sights. What are the ostensible grounds here? And can they get purchase on this effort to impeach? We'll assume for purposes of this question that conviction by two-thirds in the Senate is fruitless, but what about just the effort to impeach and give him the uh, scarlet letter of being the second cabinet officer for since 1800s to be uh, impeached? You know, there are plenty of reasons to raise concerns about this secretary and several other previous secretaries of the Department of Homeland Security's management of the office, which is enormous, too big for any department, and the efficacy of different parts of that department are always struggling because it's too dang big and nobody can get into all of the problems and all of the dysfunction and all of the failures. Lots of secretaries have struggled with that. But this feels, based on the claims that have been made, to have been looking for a defendant and choosing the crime first. Choosing a crime based on the fact that it's very politically popular in red states to complain about and to scapegoat immigrants and to believe that that is some horrible red scare coming our way and and challenging various Americans' ability to get employment that's gainful. And so I, I think Mayorkas ended up just basically being the secretary in the job at the time when this popular crime was identified. I think it's interesting that Carol mentioned prior administrations. So you know who said that for decades, the United States has not been in complete control of its borders? That was uh, President George W. Bush. And I encourage people to go look up Operation Intercept. An American president essentially shut down the southern border for three weeks and then gave up because that was not sustainable. That was Richard Nixon. So this is a problem of over half a century. And the Republicans have not shown how either Biden or Mayorkas are somehow not enforcing the law. Really, the only folks that can change this is Congress with comprehensive immigration reform. And guess what? It's House Republicans that actually opposed comprehensive immigration reform. Just to add to all of this, you know, I thought that by having worked at ICE for five years, I was sort of expert in the challenges of the Secretary of Homeland Security's ability to manage things. And then I realized I'm on a podcast with the foremost authority on mismanagement at the Secret Service and, and the department. So thank you, Carol, for all of that. But when you think about it, the Secret Service and ICE and Customs and Border Protection and all of these agencies were smushed together into a management quagmire that no person should have to oversee. I think the one point I would add to all of this is that 
the reasons for impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas are really policy differences here. It is. Yes. We do not like how Democrats or the Biden administration carries out immigration enforcement, whether it's a political winner or not. But we just don't agree with it. Whether folks wish to support the impeachments of Donald Trump or even Bill Clinton, for that matter, they were for specifically various, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors, right? No one would say that we're impeaching Bill Clinton because of his welfare reform policy. No, you impeach him because he lied under oath. Or likewise, Donald Trump and either of the two times he were impeached. It wasn't over policy. Here is what you're doing is really weaponizing a substantive disagreement with Alejandro Mayorkas and Joe Biden over how immigration is enforced. The irony there, Elliot, is that the Secretary of Homeland Security under Donald Trump before she got fired and replaced by a more sycophantic secretary warned Donald Trump that the way that he was pursuing his immigration policy, which Republicans generally want, was illegal. The way that he was pursuing it was a crime. And he kept telling her, well, we'll just pardon the agents, but they have to do what I want them to do. I will just pardon them. And she tried to explain that really is not the way we're going to run this railroad. Yeah, I, I wanted to say 100% to Ellen. I mean, we have a kind of common law of impeachment in this country. And I think it's the Johnson impeachment way back when that stands for the proposition. You don't do it for policy differences. Mayorkas's would-be predecessor, Belknap, was totally taken graft, and that's completely different. And to Carol's point and your point, Elliot, yeah, it's an incredible bureaucratic morass. But as the congressman said, you know, I was there pre-Homeland Security there's no other problem that I can think of that is so Groundhog Day as trying to police the border. It's friggin' impossible. The points are sound on both sides, but it's surely not owned by one party or another. So it would be brazen departure from precedent. And it's an interesting test for McCarthy if he actually lets it go forward. But something that there'll be surely unanimity among the Republicans on their most cherished target is Hunter Biden. This notwithstanding that a Trump U.S. attorney has spent more than four years investigating him. But the caucus will be holding this week. The first of what you can bet are many hearings focused on him. So again, just sort of an explainer. I mean, in some ways, they want a kind of a knight's move that goes through Hunter and tags the president. But, you know, as a private citizen, he wouldn't typically be the subject of a congressional investigation. What is the ostensible justification? What are they even hoping to prove or get many in the country to believe? My understanding of the hearing, of, it's the one you're referring to, Harry, is it's not even about Hunter Biden. It's about right. what Twitter, Twitter said right. about yeah. a widespread New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, that is sort of how out there Republicans are. And <laughs> Democrats are happy to point out that that's what they're doing. And Democrats are focused on the economy. The jobs report for January came out, an astounding 517,000 jobs Amazing. created, yeah. two times above expectations, unemployment at a lowest rate in 50 years. So we're just going to keep highlighting that and keep pointing that Republicans want to focus on what social media said about Hunter Biden's laptop. Carol, your colleagues have reported recently that Hunter Biden's made a notable strategic move toward the kind of aggressive calling out of critics. And that's the kind of move, it seems to me, 
once you make that, you know, you can start with honey and go to vinegar, but then you can't go back. So I think that's what we're going to be seeing. Why do you think they've made this shift? And is it a smart move? Well, he's brought on Abby Lowell, who right. we all know well as a person who's a um, very much a veteran of the aggressive hand-to-hand combat with Congress and also with DOJ, which yeah. Hunter has problems with both, uh, investigation into tax and gun problems with DOJ, which we'll see if that gets resolved or moves to another stage. And then with regard to Congress, these investigations and these hearings. And I don't think it's going to stop with what social media said about Hunter's laptop. I think what Hunter Biden and possibly the White House are girding for is the possibility that there is an attempt to tag the president with some receipt or some action or some benefit that comes to Hunter via China or the Ukraine. And as soon as you can tag him with receiving a cup of coffee, I make that sort of sarcastically, but as soon as you can tag that the president received something of value in the course of this or aided his son in the course of this, that's the goal. Now you ask the question, is this a good strategy? I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on podcasts. Better than many. And I will say that I couldn't agree more that an aggressive strategy is a shocker to some of the people that came after Hunter Biden. It's a shocker, I'm sure, to Giuliani and Bannon. But it's not like they don't have some ammo left in their cartridges. (laughs) It's not like they don't have something else to come back with. So it wouldn't be my choice personally, but perhaps it will benefit Hunter Biden. I know that the White House is worried about whether it will benefit the president, and there are serious doubts about that. Yeah, to pick up on that very point, the challenge with congressional oversight generally is that it is a legal or quasi-legal, legal, let's say, approach carried out by a political body, right? And necessarily a component of that is going to be the public relations and combat that extends far outside of what happens in a courtroom or in a hearing room or whatever. And so parties do it all the time. Now, look, the Congress can, and, and Congressman knows this very well, Congress can engage in oversight of things outside of government. Think about the tobacco industry being the obvious one. I think I would say, though, that the American people were probably benefited far more from investigation of the tobacco industry or the banking industry than they will be by an investigation into Hunter Biden's laptop, right? It's just, it's hard to see where Other than political gotcha, it's hard to see where actual uh, either benefit to the American people or moving our legal system forward in any way is going to come from any of this. But like I said, history is written by the victors. The other issue Republicans will face is that under the Trump administration, uh, they basically ignored congressional subpoenas. And then you have Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, ignoring a bipartisan congressional subpoena. So people see this happen. And it wouldn't surprise me if now in the next two years, a bunch of people ignore Republican congressional subpoenas. Now, that is not good for the institution. And so I worked on legislation to have the House use inherent contempt to compel subpoenas. I believe it was the right thing to do when we had a Republican administration. I think it's the right thing to do when we have a Democratic administration. So I'm going to continue to work on that issue and continue to reintroduce that bill. Congressman, a question for you. So now a number of your colleagues and if not colleagues, allies are going to face subpoenas over the coming year. What would you advise them to do? Would you say just blow them off, right? 
I'm genuinely curious as to how Democrats, after that very point you talked about, Trump and his team spent years not treating Congress as an equal. So what should your folks do? I have repeatedly been reminding everyone that Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, ignored a lawfully issued bipartisan congressional subpoena. And then I make the point that congressional subpoenas are virtually meaningless. And if you want to make them not meaningless, join my bill. So that's what I say. <laughs> nice. Okay. Maybe this for a closeout question. So, Congressman, in your tweet, you said uh, in reference to this hearing coming up about the New York Post with a little bit of a Joe Namath swagger, if that's not ancient history to everyone, Democrats will take back the House next term, guaranteed. So let me ask, you know, obviously it's this dynamic where individuals may come from districts that just love their rabid ways, but how will this play for the Republicans as a whole? Are they driving off the cliff? We know what the polls do show is that the overwhelming majority of the American public believe that House Republicans are not focused on the priorities of the country and that they also are way too focused on investigating the Biden administration. I also know Hunter Biden is a private citizen. So, I mean, there, there's that issue as well. Yeah. And I and other Democrats are going to keep reminding American people that Democrats are focused on putting people over politics and focused on better paying jobs and lower costs and safer communities. And the administration's record of same, yeah. Carol Elliott, any thoughts about if the wisdom of this strategy that obviously McCarthy signed off on to get the speakership, is this going to be so trivial and backfire on him? I think it depends a little bit on what new facts emerge. And again, facts are never getting in the way of partisan activists' ability to milk them for all they're worth. So it doesn't have to be a shockingly huge new fact, but new facts can be deployed, weaponized. And I think that there is the possibility, again, just based on my previous experience in Washington, Americans love a scandal you can personalize. And um, the congressman couldn't be more right. This is a private citizen. He happens to be the son of a president, a son who's struggled with a lot of problems. Which are the source of these very issues. You know, the laptop, he says he doesn't even remember if he did. He was really at his drugged out worst at that point. Correct. I couldn't agree more about the reason not to focus on a private citizen and yeah. use our resources as taxpayers a different way. But when you can personify something and get on your megaphone to explain that this all links back to the president, whether it does or doesn't, it can be powerful and it has been powerful in the past. It's time now for our sidebar feature. Last week, the Department of Justice announced murder for hire and money laundering charges against three members of an Eastern European criminal organization for plotting the murder of a U.S. citizen who has been targeted by the government of Iran for speaking out against the regime's human rights abuses. One of the three defendants is a U.S. citizen, but the other are from the Czech Republic and Iran, which raises the question, when can the U.S. bring criminal charges in federal courts against foreign nationals? To explain it to us, I am thrilled to welcome four-time Academy Award winner Frances McDormand, best known for her standout performances 
in a run of small-budget independent films such as Mississippi Burning, Almost Famous, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Nomadland, for which she won Oscars for both Best Actress and Best Picture as a producer in 2020. And she also won an Emmy for her performance in the HBO miniseries Oliver Kittredge and a Tony for her role on Broadway in Good People. So I give you Fran McDormand on when can the U.S. bring criminal charges against foreign nationals. When can the United States bring criminal charges against foreigners for conduct outside of the country? Generally, U.S. criminal law is limited by territorial jurisdiction. In other words, crimes are generally tried and punished according to the laws where the crime took place. This usually means that federal criminal laws apply only to crimes committed in the United States. But in some cases, federal prosecutors prosecute foreign nationals who, while located outside of the United States, engaged in conduct that violated one or more U.S. criminal laws. For example, as a result of the Mueller investigation, the Department of Justice brought charges against the Russian Internet Research Agency and Russian nationals for conspiracy to influence the 2016 elections and assist candidate Donald Trump. The Supreme Court has held that there is a presumption that U.S. laws apply only within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. However, when Congress clearly expresses an affirmative intention to broaden the reach of such laws, it has authority to do so. In other words, when a particular criminal statute expressly or impliedly authorizes its application beyond the territory of the United States, prosecutors may validly target criminal activity committed outside U.S. borders. A surprising number of federal criminal statutes have such extraterritorial application. These include the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, commonly known as RICO, and various anti-money laundering and criminal fraud laws. Extraterritorial enforcement of these laws is fairly rare. However, this is likely due to practical challenges and diplomatic considerations. In the case of the alleged Russian international computer hacking and bank fraud schemes, for example, the cases are complicated by Russia's refusal to extradite its citizens to the U.S. for prosecution. Indeed, the Department of Justice recently dropped charges against the only internet research agency defendant that appeared, through lawyers, in a U.S. court. This was Concord Management and Consulting. In dropping the charges, Department of Justice lawyers explained that the difficulties of prosecuting the foreign entity, classification issues, and the inability to enforce punishment against Concord all weighed in favor of its decision not to further pursue the case. For Talking Feds, I'm Frances McDormand. Thank you very much, Frances McDormand. McDormand's 2020 film, Women Talking, which she stars in and produced, is nominated for Best Picture in this year's Academy Awards. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we hop into the beer cooler to ask the question, to IPA or not IPA? The India Pale Ale has become synonymous with the word hoppy. 
And it's that hoppiness that's created a bittersweet relationship with IPAs that has divided beer lovers across the world into two categories. Those who love this style of the pale ale for its full-flavored bite with flavors of lemon and pine needle, plus typically higher alcohol content. And then those who prefer a little less sharpness with each sip. So what gives IPAs that signature bite? Well, there's another abbreviation you should know, IBU, which stands for International Bitterness Units. The higher the IBU, the more bitter the beer. Luckily, at Total Wine and More, we carry an array of IPAs that offer up a huge range of happiness. We've all been bitten by a hoppy IPA in our past. Swing by your local Total Wine and More and let our guides find you an IPA that's more Y-O-U. So find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's move now. He's been a little bit obscure this week, pleasantly, but Donald Trump and the city that he used to brag he could shoot somebody in open air is much less kind to him these days. He's really on the run from two offices in lower Manhattan, the New York AG and the New York DA. So I wanted us to start with Letitia James' uh, civil fraud suit against not just Trump, but three of his Children, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka, it strikes me as really starting to draw blood. We saw this week actual video of Trump's taking the Fifth Amendment. I just wonder what impact you think that has, because we already knew it happened, but still now we have the video. Thoughts about seeing the former president take the Fifth, and as many people pointed out, it's really important to underscore a jury will see that as well because it's a civil trial. I would just toss out this, which is after covering Donald Trump for four and a half, five years, depending on how you measure his candidacy and his presidency, this is among the least shocking videos that could be released involving him, least shocking activity. I don't see that it has a great deal of power one way or another. It, mm -hmm. I'm sure people will make a lot of hay of it, but... He was almost like anesthetized by his lawyers, right? They took care that he wouldn't give a sort of histrionic Trumpian performance because a jury's going to see this. I mean, this is... Talk about a mix of legal and political. It's a low-energy Donald Trump, which is what you saw. But sad, right? but, you know... <laughs> I mean, a couple things with that Fifth Amendment. One, like you said, Harry, he's allowed to do it. It's his right as a citizen. But the tricky thing is, as you said, in a civil suit, it can be used against him. And the fact that he won't answer questions, the jury can say, well, what does he have to hide? Which you can't do in a criminal The prosecutor can argue yeah. that he has something he to hide. Otherwise, to hide. he wouldn't have said that. Yeah. Now, the tricky thing is, and this came up in, in one of the other many cases twirling around the president, this is now the attorney general suit where they want they're seeking sanctions against the president for in effect lying by not responding to claims that were being made. So for instance, one of the things that they were asked was the first line of the pleading is the Trump organization. Do you agree that there is a thing called the Trump organization? And they wouldn't stipulate right. to that. Now, literally, if you go to their website, his bio says, I'm Donald Trump, the head of the Trump organization. Eric Trump testified about the Trump organization. So needless to say, there's a long record of, of the Trump organization existing, but they were denying it in this pleading and they're seeking to get sanctioned for that and 300 other statements that they denied. 
The point is, when you plead the fifth or don't answer a question as a means of either lying or delaying or disrupting a suit, yeah, you can get in trouble for that. But it's sort of the same. Listen to Carol's point. It's the same story again and again and again. No one is shocked by seeing Donald Trump take the fifth for however many hundreds of times over a multi-hour period. It's just more of the same. And I think that's what frustrates many people around the country about the inability to sort of hold him accountable for some of the things he's been accused of. I mean, there certainly was a cost here as there wouldn't have been in a criminal setting because you couldn't comment on it. I I'm, was struck by the article by Maggie Haberman a couple days ago that points out, I think accurately, there have been ways now that Trump, including the sanctions, you spoke about sanctions, Elliot, he and his lawyer got tagged for a million bucks in sanctions and promptly withdrew two lawsuits. You know, he's kind of a one-trick pony, but he's just brazenly soldiers on. I think he's been forced out of his playbook in certain respects that are pretty interesting. Point of personal privilege or whatever, that Florida suit with the million dollars, yeah. that the judge I clerked for wrote that, Judge Don Middlebrooks in the Southern District of Florida. I've never seen an opinion like that. We might have talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but it was just scathing and not even out of personal vendetta or a desire to bring down the former president. It's just misconduct on the courts and people's money and time. And we're going to iterate how this costs a million dollars and how this is a million dollars of other lawyers' time is really fascinating, brilliant opinion in my unbiased view. <laughs> All right. A few minutes to move one mile north, I believe, to the uh, district attorney's office, where I once worked briefly, actually. So he now has green-lighted the grand jury to investigate charges growing out of the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, which he had previously mothballed. Why did he choose to restart this case now after he had previously shut it down? Any thoughts? I don't know the answer to that, but I just want to make the point that Michael Cohen went to prison in part because he participated in the illegal hush money payment from Trump to Stormy Daniels. So we'll see what the facts show in this case. But it is, I think, very important to understand that someone already went to prison for this illegal transaction. This week's going to be a lot of focus. So when he mothballed it before, there were two pros who had come in and said, you should go forward on it. And they had in mind a pretty big case. And Mark Pomerantz, one of the two, kind of bad timing for Alvin Bragg, his book has just come out and he's making a publicity tour. How bad a week is Bragg going to have as a result? I think pretty bad because yeah. here you have one of his senior deputies, somebody who was working on this case and is going to give up the receipts and the details from inside the office to the degree that he doesn't believe it hurts future investigation, explaining the extensive evidence that he was building, gathering for what he describes as a, according again, according to the parts that I've been able to see and, and hear about as his publicity tour leaks out, he was building a state racketeering case that could have covered two to three decades, comparing Donald Trump to John Gotti, ex-mobster, in terms of the criminal enterprise that he believed was the foundation and the lifeblood of the Trump Organization and Donald Trump's financial wherewithal. It's quite a thing to say, and yet it has some foundation in the tax returns that the New York Times got copies of and that we also at the Washington Post wrote a great deal about, which was 
How is it that you're able to claim Donald Trump and Trump organization, no income in one particular form and on the same piece of property or the same business venue claim millions in income? How can that be accurate and not fraudulent in any way, shape or form? How can this property you own be worth tens of millions, but hundreds of thousands in another setting where it behooves you for the property to be worth less? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me to put Bragg in a no-win situation, right? I don't see him building a 20-year you know, RICO case. So he can either build the case he wants, and then he looks like it's uh, second best, or he cannot bring charges. And then we have a whole blueprint of what it could have been, et cetera. So for those who are, and there are many, thirsting for accountability for Trump, it does put him in a, in a funny position. One more sort of last legal question. When we talk about this, it would come back to Alan Weisselberg again, talk about having the receipts. He, you know, he has them back to Trump's father's time. Does Bragg need cooperation from Weisselberg to make the case? And can he get it? I don't know if he can get it, given the general loyalty that people around the former president, both in his business enterprise and his political operations, seem to have. He seems to engender a lot of loyalty. But it's hard to build a case on just papers, on just receipts and, and financial information. You need that one person inside. Alan Weisselberg's got to be it, or maybe not it, but close to it. He's as close to anybody I don't want to get into the the head of a potential witness. Why someone would throw it all away at age 75 years old is beyond me. You've been in prisons, Harry. They're kind of miserable places. Rikers is, this, it is where a he horrible is, is, place. Is especially a special hellhole. I too have been there. It is a horrible place and notorious. Needless to say, to move forward with the case, you got you to get a witness. All right. We have just a second for our Talking Five feature where we all take a question answered in five words or fewer. And the question this week to answer in five words or fewer, what should Merrick Garland do with the Mike Pence case? Stick with your standard. The standard has been if somebody's going to run for president as announcing or is going to announce, they need a special counsel. Obviously, Biden hadn't formally announced, but Biden was basically Garland's boss. There's very little way to investigate (laughs) your boss. That's my explainer for those five words. There you go. Appoint a special counsel now. Don't need an explanation on that. So I'd say don't need one, but whatever. And a little bit of explanation there. You know, I really do believe that the Justice Department's capable of investigating sensitive figures. But to Carol's point, the cat's out of the bag now, and you've got people from different parties being investigated. And to look fair, you have to do it. But I, I really do believe don't need one, but whatever. Nothing. And that tells you something. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Carol Elliott and Congressman Liu. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, 
we posted a conversation with Frank Figliuzzi about the recent indictment of former FBI counterintelligence official Charles McGonagall, who was operating as a double agent. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to the great Francis McDormand for explaining the law around the United States bringing charges against foreigners. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.